Okay, another episode of the Steve Laidlaw podcast. You'll notice I updated the art. I spent like 20 minutes on PowerPoint and came up with something, um, I don't know, better than what I had before. Um, and on this episode, I'm really excited to be joined by Will Scouch. He's now a contributor to McKean's Hockey. He has the uh, Scouching feed on Twitter, YouTube, and all of the other platforms. Will Scouch. How are you doing? Doing well, Steve. How are you? You know, I, I'm doing pretty fantastic. Um, Amazing. I mentioned you're on all of the platforms. Can I get you sending me prospect clips on Snapchat? <laughs> I uh, I was uh, I haven't been on the Snapchat the, for 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 years now. That's the one that I haven't hit yet, mostly because I have no idea what I would uh, what I would do there. But uh, yes. Basically, all the greatest hits. Twitter and YouTube are the primary ones for sure. And do you think that uh, the Arizona Coyotes, how they got all that extra prospect data, was that like, I don't know, mining biometrics off of TikTok? You know what? I don't know what happened there, but at this point, very, very little would surprise me, especially with a team as uh, enterprising and creative as the Coyotes can be. Yeah, honestly, at this point, we haven't found out what their punishment's going to be. But yeah. I think that th there shouldn't even be any punishment. Just release all the data to all the teams. Wh whatever they mind uh, out of their data, release it all. That would be more costly to <laughs> them than any financial fee or suspension or anything like that that they could levy. Yeah, I honest, honestly, I had totally forgotten about that story until you mentioned it. And I feel like that wasn't even that long ago. Um, and yeah, we haven't had a, uh, uh, yeah, we haven't had a, a fix on that yet. So I'm, I'm curious to see how it'll turn out. And I'm curious to see what comes out of it. Because you're right, if that data does ever become public, it might not even be extremely valuable. But I mean, I, yeah, definitely a weird story that I completely lost track of. I don't know. I, I won't let that story die because it's one of the most interesting ones going in hockey, even though it, it seems like it's, it's becoming mostly irrelevant just because it's been, I don't know, it, these last two months have been the longest year ever. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, Will, I kind of want to know, like, how did, you know, it says that you've been scouting since 2016 on your profile. Uh, how did you get your start? Yeah, so the, it, it basically came up, uh, you know, I w always was the guy who was, you know, not, I was never the super high level hockey player, but I was a huge hockey fan growing up, uh, obviously still am. Uh, but I was also the kid who would memorize the statistics and who was the coaches and who was the general managers and who the teams were drafting and, you know, who the top junior kids were, who were a lot of fun that people were really excited about you know I, I grew up in Toronto so who who did Toronto draft and who you know where where did they come from and you know who's Matt Stajan and all that stuff and uh it, it the draft part of it kind of faded a little bit as I was getting older uh went to university uh for kinesiology did some biomechanics studies um you know volunteered in junior a for a year uh and and just started to sort of recapture the passion for not just hockey, but the draft. And, you know, towards around 2016, I, you know, was in a part of my life where I was really sort of being introspective about what I wanted to do uh, with myself and my spare time, especially. And, you know, I always kept 
pushing the idea of I really like the draft. There, there's all this hockey analytics stuff coming out. You know, like I said, I grew up in Toronto, where Toronto went through that phase of being a decent team in the NHL, but all the analytics people were rightfully pointing out that there was a bit of smoke and mirrors and figuring out why that was, what it is about analytics that, that can be attributed to hockey and, and what it's valuable for. All those things I really sort of ate up right from the get-go around, you know, I'd say about 2010-ish or 11. And applying that to the draft was something that I always felt was a little bit underdone. Uh, and it is a little bit different in my experience than, than just taking a look at the analytics in the NHL. Um, but it's been fascinating for me to look into. And the more and more I do it, the more and more involved I get. Um, and since 2016, it's gone from just having a spreadsheet of guys that are draft eligible uh, into having multiple, you know, sources of data, multiple levels of, of, of granularity and trying to sort of organize it into sort of one platform where people can sort of get real concrete data and information on guys that are draft eligible, whether they're fans of a team or they work for a team. So you touched on something that I kind of want to pull on the thread of. You mentioned that you uh, you helped out with a junior A team uh, a while back. So w- what are some of the lessons that you learned from that that kind of uh, helped feed your your philosophy or, or methodology? Well, it was interesting. You know, I was only able to do it for one season. Um, it, it was really interesting to be exposed to the personality of uh, of a high-level hockey team. You know, junior A is a high-level in terms of hockey right you know and and being exposed to the personalities and the scheduling and the just the environment uh really sort of painted a picture of what you know hockey as an industry however small or large uh can be and and you know just seeing you know meeting the passionate fans who would show up to junior a games and you know this was a time before hamilton had their ohl team i think they had an ahl team but if you wanted to see junior hockey you know, the area where I was volunteering uh, didn't really have a whole lot that was, that was available at that, at that level. And so it was really interesting to me to just sort of get exposed to that from the player side, but also from, from the coaches, coaching side. You know, I had never interacted with high-level coaches or people who, you know, had the opportunity to bring in players onto a junior A team, such as the general manager, and, and, and send them off to NCAA programs and sort of help these kids you know, build a future for themselves through hockey and being exposed to that and seeing what the kids did to dedicate themselves to it. And even the the other side of it where the personal side, so some guys on the team being out of their comfort zone for the first time, moving away from home or guys who, you know, you hear the stories about guys who are unsettled or unhappy or whatever, and then you see it firsthand you know, and obviously it's very, very limited. It's a junior A, nothing horrible, but you see the, the, the kids at this level who just basically want what's best for them. And, and, and you sort of learn that everyone is sort of looking out for what's best for them primarily. And, and having that experience to get to know some of these people, get to know from the coaching and management and, and player side and seeing how that all kind of comes together with the fans and the game day thing, like just being exposed to all that was really really interesting and and for anyone looking at doing this kind of work I would you know I'm sure these teams are looking for volunteers in your local area so you know I I sent out a bunch of emails to local junior a clubs and and junior clubs when I was in university and the team I volunteered with was the first one to respond and, and they called me in and that was it 
yeah you you know you can really make uh, your way in the world if if you really want to so just like those players were were trying to make their way up that was a, a good entry point for you as well and because like as analysts and uh, we're we're constantly constantly levying opinions and, and stuff like that and it can almost get to a point where we forget about the humanity of of the people and, and the players um mm-hmm. behind these these stories that that we're following and and talking about so um yeah i I really like what you touched on there with just the the perspective of what the actual players are going through how do you kind of feed that back into what you're doing now uh Mm -hmm. with scouting well it's that that i know in our pre episode notes we kind of went over this kind of concept and that's like a the idea of what of what have i learned since i started doing this and really digging in and you know the personal side of it especially framing it you know now that i'm older not that i'm particularly old but i am older uh than draft eligible players now you know i really try to go out of my way and put myself in their shoes and you know i don't i don't get the chance to get to meet these people personally i don't get to i don't get to pick their brain and and get to know who they are as people um but what i do get to see is how they play the game and and what I really try to look for is guys who have something that's special about their game that you can reinforce with them you know I think a team that does that really really well uh, very publicly is the Chicago Steel you know um, and and their general manager uh, Ryan who's on Twitter basically all the time and giving little tidbits and information about how the steel operate their team and and the sort of holistic approach they have the highly tailored individual you know, um, you know, raising the spirits of each individual player, however they need, uh, in order to work functionally as a unit. You know, I think that that kind of side of, of, you know, not just putting together a good team, but developing really good talent and developing really good people. I think that that's something that, you know, is something that I've learned more and more about over time and really trying to put myself in the shoes of these guys. You know, I, I try to, you know, I, I try to shine a light, for example, on the positives and negatives of a player. You know, there's no player that's perfect, um, but there is a way to articulate both positives and negatives that that I think is more beneficial for everyone. So, you know, I don't necessarily like to, you know, use personality traits as a as a positive or a negative uh, on a on a player, especially because these guys are 17, 16, 17, 18 years old. So. You know, I think it was Don Waddell at the draft for Carolina, who I thought had a great draft in 2019. After the draft, he said, look, we, we don't really worry too much about the personalities of these young guys. You know, we, we think that they're young and they'll develop and get older. And if you surround them with other people you want them to behave more like or more aspirational personalities – then over time they'll mold into sort of what you're looking for if you sort of frame things properly. So that's part of the thing, a part of this whole work that I'm really interested in is, is how do you positively reinforce these young kids and turn them into fully functional, talented, you know, adult pro hockey players that can apply their best talents rather than focusing on their negatives too much um, or ignoring the negatives altogether. I think that you need to be able to articulate and communicate effectively. And that's a big reason why I started actually pushing myself to do the YouTube videos where I actually have to say words that, that, you know, if I were sitting with the player, say words that I think I would want to say to the person rather than be a little bit, um, more, I guess, 
acute, I guess would be the word with, with my criticism, I guess you could say, where I think a lot of people might be not so helpful. You touched on so many things there that uh, that I want to uh, pick away at going a little bit deeper. Um, so it, it sounds to me like you're really kind of focusing on, you know, what can a player do, player typing, that sort of thing, and really enhancing that. Because like ultimately that's young people and even some, some adults who, who never get around to it, you're trying to figure out who you are and what, what your place is in the world. And within the the hockey sphere as well you're trying to as a player coming up you're trying to figure out okay what are my strengths what are my weaknesses where can I fit on this team how can I you know how can I fill a role how can I make myself better so I guess how do you really hone in on what a player type is and then what can make them better is that a huge part of your kind of your scouting reports on players and, and where you see them fitting in on teams Sure. That, I think that's a primary part of what I do. I, 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 don't, I don't think that, um, you know, I, I think that the primary, the primary part of what I do is basically what you just said. Um, I, I really, the reason that I am tracking the data manually in all of these games uh, and really just sort of taking a sample of the players playing the game and, and observing what's happening when they play and, and boiling the game down um, boiling the game down to its fundamental bits and, and identifying players that are either exemplary in a few of those areas or, or from an eyeball test perspective, you know, where do they show potential in this certain area where you can exacerbate it long-term and, 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 and leverage it into something better. I think that it's really important to think about it, you know, like I always try to think about looking at developing hockey talent and developing any kind of talent as if it were any other business. You know, how, how do you identify, you want to identify if you're putting together, let's say a company and you're, and you have multiple different departments, you know, uh, you want to make sure that those departments all function together and interact well together. And you want to make sure that the personalities make sense, that the approach to what your company is trying to be all makes sense. And you need to, and in order to do that as the as best you can is to use, I think in hockey, at least use as much data and information as you can. So, you know, people like who submit, let's say it's applying for a job, people who submit very detailed and concise resumes probably are more likely to get a call back in people who are more interested in what they're doing. If they have better resumes, they might be more likely to get those callbacks, you know, people without those high level you know, traits and qualities might be people who still would be a good fit for your company, but you might need to just dig a little bit deeper and identify factors that might help them fit into what you're trying to do a little bit better. So when I track data, you know, and when I observe players play, I'm trying to see, okay, what is it that this guy is doing that is measurable that I could present to a director of scouting or a general manager or whoever and say, look, you know, if you want your team to play this way, and I think there's multiple ways a team can win a hockey game, whether it's physical and controlling pace a little bit better, you know, playing quick and speedy and skilled, um, you know, all these different things can, I think, in different ways be applied properly uh, if, if you go about it the right way. But, you know, you would want, I would want to be able to present, you know, a person of authority with as detailed a situation as I could and just say, here's what this person is doing and it's on paper 
and it's and it's right there. And I know you have, let's say, two scouts saying X, but you know we can talk about how this projects long term. But on paper, right now, what the player is doing on the ice is not lining up with with what other people are saying. And I don't think that means that the data is definitive, but it means that there needs to be work done to figure out what you're actually looking at and what you're actually going to get with a player. And identifying player types is the major, major part of what I do. And, and the more that I do this, the more I seem to gravitate towards what I would call legitimately riskier picks, you know, guys who have tremendous amounts of potential uh, and that's indicated through data and or the video work that I do. But also, you know, it, it also pushes guys who might be more conventionally seen as, as safer picks, you know, more back towards the back of my ranking because I, trend, I tend to look at it and go, I need to sit down with this player and go, here's what I see in you that is special. And there are certain areas of your game that I think are over, like, that are looked at a little bit too much that make you look, look, to other people a little bit worse than you are. And we need to at least get those up to a competent level so that you can showcase what you're more capable of. Because if you do this at the same level as you age, then you're going to be a great player. You know, there, there's potential for you here. And you, you try to focus on those positives that make a player really, really special um, and, and overcome what weaknesses you might see rather than try to chase guys who don't show same the same amount of weaknesses while also not showing maybe the same amount of of potential benefit yeah so to kind of frame this in less of an abstract terms let's use a player example for me a really palpable example of player typing is tim stutzla he is obviously going to be a transition type player you know if nothing else He's going to be the guy who can get you zone exits and zone entries really well. What else he does on top of that, I'm sure you have some data to look at that, but I know just from watching him a handful of times, this is a guy who's clearly going to be able to do that. And then we can, we can use him in that fashion and then build on all the other things that he needs to add. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I think with Tim Stutzla, for example, I mean, he's a tough one to read, I think, because, you know, I do agree that in terms of transitions, he's, he's, you know, pretty darn good at generating them, especially considering he's playing in a men's league in, in Germany and in a pretty primary role. I, I think that his transition game, you know, it, in my data that I tracked on him, it wasn't showcased as much. I mean, when he was, you know, pushing offensive, offensive zone entries, he was, he was doing them with control more often than not, which is always something you want to see. Um, and he was doing it against, you know, grown men in Germany. Uh, you know, and I have questions about Tim Stutzel's projectability, but he is a good example of, you know, you can see special talents in him. You can see the skill. You see his, his footwork. Um, you know, you see how hard he works on the ice. He's good, in my opinion. He's good at both ends of the ice. Um, you know, and there's a few little things about his game that I might want to tweak, but you can easily see him and be a guy that, that you want to exacerbate the positives of his game. I, you know, I, I don't know if I have him where some people are putting him sort of that top two, top three lock kind of situation. But I mean, I think at the end of the day, he's going to be one of the most exciting players to come out of this draft as a scoring winger that is not a, a liability in his own end. And I think that those are the types of players that really can help you round out your, your rebuilding team into something that could be something special down the road. 
Um, you know, but uh, uh, since we're talking about specific examples, like a guy who I'm a huge believer in this year uh, relative to most people is Marat Kuznetinov. And he's a Russian kid playing in, in, uh, in, in St. Petersburg for their junior team. And he's a guy who, as soon as I saw him play at the under-18s last year, which is something you don't see Russians do very often, which is bring guys who are eligible for the year after. Uh, so he was a 2020 eligible playing in the 2019 under-18s. You don't see that from Russians very much. And, and he was playing pretty limited minutes, but he did produce okay. Um, and, you know, he's a guy who I think – really drew my attention immediately this year he's incredibly good at driving those offensive and offensive transitions whether it's out of his own zone into the offensive zone you know I see a lot of skill with the puck on him as well you know the finishing part the scoring part I thought improved a lot as the year went on internationally he has been kind of flying under the radar in terms of actually putting points on the board um, some people question his offensive upside but again we're talking about I, I try to think three, four, five years down the road. And, and if I'm sitting with Marat and talking to him and going, here's where we see your game. Here's what I see your game as very, very special, you know, and here's what I think your primary game type is. And you show skill and speed and patience and all of these tools that can make you not just a great playmaker, but a great scorer on your own stick as well. You know, and there's, there's flashes of real, real smart offensive play there, especially at five on five, which is primary, which is basically the only thing I track. I don't really look at special teams a ton, uh, if at all. And so with a player like Marat Kuznetinov, who, especially considering he's a born almost, he's relatively close to a 2021 eligible, um, one of the younger players available in this year's draft. I, I think that the projectability of his game, um, you know, he's either going to work out and I think be a tremendous two-way hockey player in the NHL or, you know, the limitations on his game, which are usually focused around his frame and his strength, might hamper his ability to project at least as a center. Um, but I think that this is a guy who, if he's available, you know, late second round, that that's a no-brainer to me. I think that the data that I've tracked on him, the the potential that he's shown, um, is is really really interesting, and and I that's most of the reason why I have him ranked so high relative to most people. Part of your 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 videos, you talk about the five traits that you grade on: think, move, get, pass, shoot. How, this reminds me of Gus Katsaros's, uh mm-hmm. his four S's of scouting. So, how did you land on these five measurements? Is it, is it the, the best methodology and does it encompass everything that's important? So, yeah, I think the, the that Gus article, uh, that Gus Katsaros article, uh, honestly, it was the one, the like step one for me was reading that article inside and out and really trying to understand what it was that Gus is trying to get at. And, and I totally have tons and tons of respect for what Gus does. Um, I think that for people who really, really want to get into the nitty gritty of scouting, it's a great way to familiarize yourself with what to look for. I think where I kind of diverge a bit is the rating system really only came about because I wanted to make the YouTube videos and I wanted a way to really sort of fundamentally articulate what I'm looking at and how to say, you know, like, I think a lot of people seem to think, I just want to know what this person is. I, I want to know how good this player is. I just, I don't, I don't, the nitty gritty, whatever, that, that's one thing. But I just kind of, what am I looking at? And, and trying to boil it down just to the fundamental parts of the game. So my realistic, the, the way that I kind of frame it is, 
I do it in order of what I think is important uh, in terms of projecting a player. So the think part starts first because I really think that it's important to understand how a player processes the game on the ice. And it's not necessarily the a nebulous term like hockey IQ that I'm looking for. You know, it's stuff like positional awareness, especially for guys playing at defense and center. You know, is it a center who's hanging out in the neutral zone or along the blue lines more often than not? Because that's certainly one thing you have to keep an eye on. Or are they more of that back-checking center who helps out their defense a lot more? Um, you know, when they have the puck on their on their stick, are they being too patient with it and over overstepping their boundaries? Uh, are they are they not patient enough and just tossing the puck out into into no man's land for no reason? Um, you know, those things are things that I think really fundamentally help your team move forward. Is the player unselfish enough to spot when they don't have an option to carry the puck up the ice and then you can circle back and maintain possession effectively. You know, I, I really look for that kind of maturity out of, out of players. I want them to, to put the team above themselves, I guess is what I'm saying. So guys who skate into one on threes every single time and, and fail at those, at those zone entries and exits um, guys who, you know, defensemen who relinquish way too much ice in the neutral zone and way too much ice in the defensive zone. Um, you know, all of these things kind of go into that think category where I'm trying to look at what is happening on the ice when they're playing. You know, then the move category is kind of also extremely important. I really, I don't think you need to be an extremely mobile player to be a good hockey player, but I do think it helps tremendously. Um, and move is kind of a nebulous thing as well because. I, at first I thought separating speed and skill would be important, but there are tons of guys out there who have a lot of speed and not a lot of skill and lose control of the puck all the time. There are guys who are the opposite, who have tons of skill and can navigate in a phone booth, but their skating is just not good. And, you know, on, at the, on the other hand, you know, what happens when you're faced with pressure? So if a defender is bearing down on you, can you maintain possession of the puck, whether it's through explosiveness, through your speed, through your footwork, or through your hands, whatever. It all kind of falls into the same category, which is like, when you have the puck, how are you moving around the ice with it? Whether it's with, with pressure or without it. You know, what's happening when, when you have possession of the puck? You know, uh, the get category, when you're away from the puck. You know, what, what happens when you're away from it? Are you invol involving yourself in defensive transitions away from the puck? Are you, are you playing well against the boards to choke out cycles? Are you more passive standing in the center of the ice, which is also something that might have a role down the road. You know, you don't want all of your players against the boards constantly all the time. Um, you know, th these things all kind of go together in a soup. And then pass and shoot really are just the ones that I kind of now almost gloss over because to me, that's the more easy part. You know, the, the, you don't see it as much in the games. You don't see players shooting the puck as much as they're doing other stuff. You know, you might see guys take at most nine or 10 pass attempts in, or shot attempts in a game on their own stick. But in terms of transitions, they could be up in the 30, 40, 50 transitions across blue lines per game uh, that you need to make sure are done with control or, you know, spot if they're done without control. So those last two categories I think are the, the nice bonus bits. I think that, that if you have guys who think the game well, move around the ice really well, play well without the puck, and I would say can maintain possession through their passing, then the shoot part, you know, you can have guys who can guys open on the other side of the ice and the shoot part gets a lot easier if you can spot that open ice and spot that open net. Um, guys who shoot the puck really, really well, but don't do much else are guys that I don't really value particularly well. Um, so it really just kind of tries to boil down the game fundamentally 
and say, what is happening when the player is on the ice? And I think the good part of it is it encapsulates pretty much everything that happens while the player's on the ice. I don't think there's anything where I'm tracking players and go, you know, geez, I wish there should be more or less categories that, than what I'm looking at. Um, it does have weaknesses and some stuff is really, really hard to quantify, uh, you know, with data. So thinking the game, I think is something that you have to, you know, understand that part of that might be tactical, but, but at the same time, you have to, at some point, present some kind of idea of how the player seems to perceive the game as it goes on around them. Um, so those categories kind of boil it all down as best I can to present to a wider audience and the numbering and lettering system just kind of helps package everything a little bit neatly and, and hand it off to, to the public without being too full of, I would say, jargon. Yeah, I mean, to me, I was going to ask you which which one of those is the most important, but I think you t you touched on that uh, really well. And certainly, to me, shoot stood out as something that doesn't necessarily fit with the rest of them because it's such a discrete skill. Yeah, I th I think that you know you do need players that can shoot the puck. You know, I a guy I profiled this year was Alexander Holtz. Now, Alexander Holtz isn't a guy who I think is a guy where all he does is shoot the puck and that's all he does. You know, that, that's what he does a lot. But, you know, they're, they're, he's a good skater. He works hard. Um, you know, he, he's, he, he can really fly once he starts getting moving. Um, so, again, there are other aspects of a player like that's game that, that can color things a little bit differently. But he's a guy who primarily is that known for shooting the puck. And when I went in and tracked him, I came away thinking, look, I, I think I only tracked across seven games that I watched, one shot attempt from in front of the net in that high danger area, and one shot attempt from between the face-off dots in that medium danger area. The rest were all out near the blue line or from low danger areas. Uh, I saw a GIF, I think today or yesterday, flying around of people talking about Alexander Holtz, and there's all this talk about how many goals he would score in the OHL, blah, blah, blah. And the goal that they showed is the one that I saw in one of the games that I tracked. And on paper, that's a low danger shot attempt. He, he, he was at a very weird angle below the faceoff circle, an angle that most people probably wouldn't score at. And in the video, I really tried to stress that, you know, yes, the data indicates that this guy is not shooting from optimal areas, but he's still scoring goals in the SHL. And if there is a guy that I want shooting from those lower danger areas, it's probably Alexander Holtz. Like he's got that good of a shot that it is worth, you know, it is worth it because I'm pretty sure that he's a guy who in the NHL, even if his even strength scoring isn't what it could be, if he doesn't push into those more dangerous areas on the power play, you know, if he's a primary shooting option there, he's a guy that could very easily be that 30, 35, maybe even more uh, goal scorer in the national hockey league, which is a benefit to anyone, even if he only scores, 25 assists in a given season you know and but but he has that defined role as a primary goal scorer for your team and and I think that that's valuable but you do need to know that there are in my opinion in that range in that top 10 other players that I think bring more in the sense of both ends of the ice and and defensive awareness uh and that sort of shooting ability in terms of positional like taking your shots from better positions I think there are other players in this range that that might bring a little bit more than Holtz but if Alexander Holtz is a guy that's available at say the ninth or tenth pick this year that's a guy that I easily would go to bat for because you know at the end of the day you play the game to score goals and he's really really good at it and getting a really really good goal scorer 
you know, especially if you have other parts to work with that you've already drafted and developed or even signed as a free agent or whatever, you, it, it makes life a lot easier when you can score goals with, with a guy you took in the top 10. Right. And I mean, like ultimately the organized chaos that is hockey, there's, I don't know, 95% of the game is those other things that lead up to maybe that 5% shoot category. And unless you are the 1 millionth percentile Alex Ovechkin, Mm-hmm. where you're absolutely insane. I don't necessarily know that you could build an offense around just the the shoot category. Like we talk about player typing. Um, if there's a guy who like this, this guy's a shooter. Okay. Uh, how much can you build around that? If that's all he does. And obviously that's not all that these players do. You know, mm-hmm. Ovechkin doesn't just shoot. Holtz doesn't just shoot, but mm-hmm. if that's, you know, if that's the majority of your game, if that's your, your leading trait, then I don't know if that's uh, necessarily the guy that you yeah. want to hang your hat on. Totally. I, and that I agree. I, I think that there are, you know, and it's, again, like it's why I do these categories in that, in that, in that order. I mean, there's guys, you know, a really good example uh, of a guy who all he did was shoot the puck uh, was Mikhail Shaligan, who last year was sort of the meme pick. I would say he was, I can't remember how many goals he scored in the Russian junior league, but he was a double overager. Uh, I think the lightning took him in the seventh round played in the ECHL this year a little bit, but I think, I mean, it was unbelievable how many goals he was scoring. And, you know, uh, I, I, I remember I had to take a look at him and, and see what he was doing and all Russian junior games are, are streamed on YouTube. So you can go and watch. Okay. I looked 48 goals in 43 games, 75 points. Uh, he had something like 30 even strength goals this last season as well, which is just bonkers. Um, but when you watch him play, you go, okay, he's out there shooting the puck. And I, I mean, he's got okay skill, I would say, but his ability to stand at the blue line, basically get a pass from a guy down low and fire it top shelf from 30 feet out. You know, that's great. It's really fun to watch. He scored 48 goals doing it. Uh, but at the same time you look at him and go, okay, when I watched him play in the VHL and a little bit of him in the KHL last year, you realize that, you know, he's a guy who just doesn't do much else other than be a trigger man. You send him the puck, you know, and he shoots it. There's some skill there as well, but in terms of skating around the ice, not the most effective back checker, you know, could be countered pretty easily. He's big, but doesn't really use his size particularly well. And it just came away feeling like, that's a prototypical case of a player who can dominate just off their shot against younger competition, especially when he's six foot four playing against, you know, a Russian junior league uh, playing for a good program like Spartak Moscow. Um, But he's a good example of that where it's just, I got the puck and I shoot it and, and not really doing much else with it. And uh, I mean, we'll see where his career goes, but he's a guy who I was not surprised to be a guy that was drafted in the seventh round, if at all last year. It sounds like he's scoring a bunch of 90, 1980s style goals. Um, a little bit. Will, how far along uh, the money ball curve do you think hockey is? Yeah, I, that's an interesting question. I think that from the tactical standpoint, it depends on the team, but from, the, from, from looking at the, the franchises and how they apply them, you know, I think that they're getting better and better every year. I think some teams are much more effective than others in terms of using uh, analytics. But I think that where 
where things I think need more work is translating players from one situation to another. You know, it's kind of hard to look at a player and their hockey viz page or whatever, which is a great website. I love it, but it's kind of hard to identify from a player's profile there what will translate to my specific team. So if I'm in the Calgary Flames and I'm looking at signing a free agent who last year played with the, I don't know, Florida Panthers, how can I look at that player and how they played in the Florida Panther system, use analytics and try to identify how they'll translate to my team. I think that's a little bit difficult still. Um, I think that where it is coming along and where I think a lot of people uh, gained a lot of traction and got hired by NHL teams to be analysts and such is on the in-game situation kind of standpoint, looking at how the game is played at the NHL level, what, trends towards scoring more you know what other teams do tactically that you can counter and present in a database way you know I think there's a lot more of that right now from my outsider's perspective and I think that the drafting and developing and scouting side of things you know there's part of part of it is video I know there are services out there that track data automatically uh, for junior leagues and such uh, which I think is valuable. I've never seen any of these services myself, but it's important to have that. But I think it does need more exploration of, you know, you might be able to identify better talent, especially after the first round, just by having more data that's tracked, uh, more data that's, that's, that's automatically generated through AI programs, you know, and really sort of digging deep and analyzing the scouting and development side. I think that that part is still a little bit underutilized. Um, but in terms of the pro game, the part where I think it still needs a bit of work is translating players from one situation to another. Um, because I've seen a lot of players with really, really good results completely fall off the wagon uh, when they, when they go somewhere else. It sounds like what you're saying is the stats that we have, they aren't very sticky. You, you're, you're not sure what's going to translate and what isn't. Like I think in terms of basketball, stuff like steals and blocks and free throw percentage, those are super sticky mm -hmm. stats. You know mm -hmm. that a guy's super involved defensively if he's got tons of steals and blocks, where you know right. he's going to be a really good shooter if he's got great free throws. So right. what are those stats in hockey? Well, I mean, for the one that came to mind when you were talking about that was like hits, for example. You know, a lot of people seem to love hits and, and, and well, maybe less and less every year. But, you know, the thing that analytics people say about hits are hits indicate that you don't have the puck. You know, hits are an indicator that you need to go out and get the puck from people. And to me, that indicates that, you know, translating that, looking at who the hit leaders are and going, we need to bring in this guy to be a part of our team. It's like a year from now, you might look back and go, well, where were all the hits? It's like, well, maybe your team was just better around that player. The line mates had the puck more, so they didn't need to be out there hitting guys. Uh, or if they were hitting people, they took a lot of penalties because they were interference calls. Um, you know, that's something that's just a small example that just came to mind. And I'm not saying that hits are a valuable measure, but it's something that could easily, easily fluctuate based on the situation you're in. You know, something like even assists, uh, a really good example from the junior world this year is Jean-Luc Foudy, who I think is one of the better playmakers in this year's draft, period. At least he has the potential to be. Um, and when you look at his line mates, he was playing most of the season, for my view, with guys like Curtis Douglas and Will Cooley uh, and, and I believe Tyler Angle from time to time, who is, I guess, an okay, a good junior player. But when you paired up Jean-Luc Foudy with these guys – uh, and it was primarily him and Will Cooley were the dynamic duo that I saw a lot of. 
those two guys didn't really play that well off of each other. And when I look at Jean-Luc Foudy and the data that I've tracked manually, he looks like an outstanding young player. But at the same time, you know, so it would so be interesting to me to see how he would translate to a team like, say, the Ottawa 67s, you know, with if Jack Quinn goes back to junior next year, him with Jack Quinn on the same line. Or, uh, you know, take your pick of any junior team that has more of that goal-scoring, finishing talent. And I think that something like assists is not sticky because those assists rely on someone else finishing the job that you put together one way or the other, whether it's passing or shooting the puck. So I look so, at that kind of a situation and, and see that as something that could be hard to translate from one team to the other. So would uh, like passes completed be a, a stickier stat if we could track that? Yeah. Yeah. I think that, I think that one thing that I think would stick is looking at what I call dangerous pass attempts, which are any pass attempt the player takes that are aimed at medium or high danger areas, or it goes through those areas one way or the other. Um, you know, pass attempts are a little bit, you know, the, the, luckily with pass attempts, I end up with a large sample of them. Guys I track often get up to the point of trying 20, 25 passes a game uh, and completing, you know, ideally something like, 18 to 20 of them per game, which is a pretty good completion rate. Um, the other thing about that is, though, that that also relies on your teammates. You know, to me, my idea of what a pass is to make it black and white is voluntarily losing possession and having a teammate pick it up. So you could pass the puck into the feet of your opponent and it just clips the back end of their skate and changes direction and hits your line mate. To me, you could make the argument that that's not a completed pass but in my world, to me, that pass left your possession and you maintained possession from on your own team. But I admit that that's something that really depends on the positioning of your line mates, the skill of your line mates, the situation on the ice that you're in. And I think, though, that it is kind of a sticky measure in the sense where the vast majority of the stuff that I track is pretty black and white. You know when the player is involved in a zone transition you know when the player is, is passing the puck. You know when that pass is completed and, and whatever. So in terms of the large sample that you get, it does kind of mitigate those negatives and those weird scenarios where it could go one way or the other. But in terms of the way that you define it, I think it's important to be as black and white as possible. And something like pass attempts can, can be, in my opinion, sticky, especially when you're talking about guys who might be able to be more playmaking style players uh, or guys who choose to take shot attempts especially from those dangerous areas which is also something that that I track as well I think those things show natural instincts that I think would translate no matter where they play so do you think that somehow combining pass attempts and shot attempts pass attempts to high danger areas plus shot attempts mm-hmm. would maybe be like the best all-encompassing stat well that in terms of an offensive threat type of thing that's exactly what I do and it's funny I I've been working on taking all of the data that I've tracked in my videos uh, and making it more digestible in a visualization format which I'm continuously working on and probably will give to people in the next little while so it'll and one of the charts that I have on here is a plot of how many per 60 minutes how many of these dangerous chances are like dangerous shot attempts are the, is this player taking? And on the other access, access is per 60 minutes. How many of these dangerous pass attempts is this player making? So it's not that you want to be at the top end of both, but you know, at the top end of one access or the other also means that one, you might be 
you know, a really, really talented shot selection player. So someone like Lucas Reichel in Germany is an absolute standout from what I tracked in that. Uh, on the other side is a Jean-Luc Foudy, who doesn't take a lot of these dangerous shot attempts himself, but sends a tremendous amount of those shot att- or those pass attempts to dangerous areas. Uh, in terms of those guys that do both, though, those do exist as well. I'm looking at my at, at the data now. Guys like Danny Gustin, uh, guys like Ozzy Wiesblatt do that a lot. Um, you know, Alexander Poshin in Russia, Cole Perfetti. You know, these guys kind of have a mixture of both. So again, going back to player typing, if you want to concretely identify players that are maybe more on the shooting talent side of things or on the playmaking side of talent of things, or they do both, there's a visual representation of the landscape and what it is you're looking at and players who might not be either of those things and might be more of those transition players who focus on play in the neutral zone and defensive zone and maintaining possession around there, which I think also has a role as well. Um, but you just have to be sure that you know what to expect and what you're getting out of these players. Uh, th- that's that's really interesting. We got to find a way to get this stuff more mainstream. Hopefully, this podcast helps. Um, <laughs> I, you, you know, you mentioned hits and their stickiness. As a fantasy hockey guy, I, I would actually note that hits are super sticky True. once you factor in arena bias and that sort of thing. It, it's mm-hmm. just it's not a good measure of telling you that they're good. Right. That's true. <laughs> um, are there any thresholds uh, of statistical thresholds that players can meet or not meet that you could use really easy to write them off or so that you don't waste time scouting a player? Uh, I mean, it's hard because some guys are really, really good in certain areas and some guys are really, really good in other areas. And a lot of the times you see that some guys are really great in certain areas and not so great in others. Um, You know, I, I do look for, if I'm looking at a forward, I'm really looking for players who do have a lot of what I would call offensive threat. So that getting to dangerous areas for your shot attempts and sending passes to dangerous areas. Like I'm looking at my chart now, like Martin Chromiak is a guy who I don't see with a ton of either of those things. So that to me devalues him. Alexander Holtz is another one who doesn't have a lot of either of those things uh, at the SHL level, but he's a little bit of a different case. Um, You know, Tyson Forster is another one. So all of those things, if you're looking at forwards, especially kind of pushes them towards the back of, of my, of my world, Um, at least a little bit lower than maybe some other guys that might be more of the opposite. Um, But you also, you know, if I'm looking at defensemen, you know, the same measures aren't that useful for defensemen. I'm looking now, like one of the quadrants I just have labeled as they're probably a defender. Uh, Jake Sanderson is probably the biggest standout in in that measure. And he's barely touching some of the forwards that I've tracked. Like he's about similar to Tyson Forster in that metric. Um, Whereas at the same time. So when I'm looking at defensemen, though, things kind of change. So when I look at defensemen, I'm looking for how do they play in transition? You know, to me, the best defensemen are the guys that are never in their own zone. Like, I don't, I don't want to see any shot attempts at all. And, and so when I'm looking at, at defensemen, guys who shut down a lot of defensive transitions uh, in terms of, like, like, let's say they face 10 transitions that are defensive across either the offensive blue line or defensive one, and they break up let's say 66% of those transitions, that's a really, really good metric that, I, that I'm looking for. You know, two out of every three transitions coming towards that defenseman that they're involved in, they lose, the opposing team loses control of the puck. That's something that I'm really interested in. And that's a big reason why someone like Jake Sanderson, from a points perspective, might fly under the radar. 
But when you start tracking the data and seeing what he's doing on the ice, you go, okay, if I want a legitimately talented defenseman, he's a guy who I think plays a very strong fundamental defensive game with, I think, some underrated offense there. So that's kind of where I sort of look at. I mean, I look for forwards who control, who do the same thing, but offensively. So guys who control a lot of offensive entries and exits. So, you know, I don't want guys dumping the puck around the ice and handing possession over to the other team. That, that's not what I'm looking for. I want guys who can spot teammates, who can cross blue lines with control. You know, Marat Kuznodinov uh, has some of the highest pass attempts per 60 minutes. He, he, he is the highest amongst forwards. I mean, per 60 minutes, he's attempting 102 passes per 60 minutes, which is insane at five on five. Cole Perfetti, 90.6, is also extremely high. And both of those two players, about four out of every five offensive transitions, they maintain control of the puck. And that, to me, indicates something that's very, very projectable as, okay, this is their natural way of playing, and their natural way of playing is maintain possession of the puck, complete my passes, and, and, and it definitely helps make your team's life a lot easier when you're able to do that. Okay, we're, we're running out of time here, Will. So I'm going to go rapid fire on some 2020 NHL draft stuff. You know, history, it doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. So a couple of years ago, we had a ton of defensemen, awesome ones in the draft, and then centermen flew up the draft board. And then last year, it was we had a ton of great forwards and defensemen flew up. So what position group are NHL teams going to reach for this year? The reach this year, I think, will be defensemen. I, I think that this year's draft is pretty light in terms of high-level defense. I think, though, what's interesting about this year is that there are some really interesting home runs that, that you could take big, big swings on this year in the draft. Like, I'm really, really interested in where William Wallander goes with his career out of Sweden. I'm really interested to see where Yoni Yermo goes out of Finland with his, with his profile. There's a lot of guys that I'm really, really interested in. And I think, though, this will be a light defense year. And teams, I think, I think the last time there was only one defenseman taken in the top 10 was, I think, 15 years ago. I would argue that there's maybe one defenseman that belongs in the top 10 this year. Maybe two if you're, if you're really, really high on Jake Sanderson. I think, you know, I have him just outside of my top 10. But, I mean, if you really, really loved him, I could see it towards the back half of the top 10. But, you know, guys like Caden Gooley, Brendan Schneider, or Braden Schneider, you know, these, these guys kind of are pushed back based on the data that I've tracked. And I think they'll get drafted higher than I would be ready to take them. Um, but you know, like you said, this happens every year. Um, so I get the sense that uh, Sanderson's going to be this year's Maurice Sider. Well, Sanderson at least is being ranked in that sort of top 15 range. Sider was more of a late first guy who went top six. And... You know, I wouldn't be surprised to see a team say, oh, crap, uh, Jamie Drysdale went off the board at four, and they have the sixth overall pick and said, well, we wanted Drysdale, but, you know, Sanderson's not so bad. And they end up with Jake Sanderson, and you end up maybe passing on a guy like Lucas Raymond uh, or, you know, whoever. I mean, take your pick. Uh, there could be a bunch of them. And that might be a decision that bites you in the bum, even if even if Jake Sanderson turns into a real solid top four defense first defenseman with decent offensive ability, which I think is perfectly reasonable. Whereas someone like a Lucas Raymond, I think is only scratching the surface of what he's capable of. And I think over time, you're going to end up with potentially a really, really special talent there. Um, and looking back on this draft, you might, you might have a little bit of mixed feelings if you're willing to say, we just want a defenseman 
because Drysdale's gone and he was what we were expecting. So Sanderson's the next best option, which is not incorrect, but you know, what you're giving up on might outweigh what you're getting, I guess, is kind of what I'm getting at. Right. Uh, so who's going to be this year's Cole Caulfield? Oh boy. Um, you know, I, I was shocked to see him slip to where he did. I think though, like I would not be surprised to see a Marco Rossi slip pretty decently. He's small. He plays center. Um, you know, he's a little bit of a, of a strange case. Um, you know, there's a swagger to his game that I think the wrong, like the, the, I think certain teams might not like about it. Uh, and if those teams are in that five to 10 slot where he might be available, they might be teams that, that let him slip in favor of something that they think resonates more with what they're looking for. I think Marco Rossi's a guy that should be gone in the top 10, but we said the same thing about Cole Caulfield. Um, so, you know, I, I think that the, the check boxes are there for people to be skeptical about him, but uh, I, am, I am most definitely not one of those people. Interesting. Um, okay, last one here. Who is the guy that you really want to rank him in the top 10, but you're too darn afraid to do it? <clears throat> Um, I've tried to set that instinct aside uh, this year. Like the guy that I have ranked highest relative to what people are expecting is Murat Kuznodinov. I have him top 15. I think he's just a tremendous player with tons and tons of potential uh, that I that I think is going to be a great two-way player in the NHL. Um, I don't know if I would even put him in the top 10. You know, Rodion Amirov is a guy that I've really, really liked watching. He's almost a full year older than Kuznodinov and played a full year almost in the KHL this year. Um, and he's a guy who, you know, I have him at 11, but I have him in a group of players that ranges from three to 11. I think he's that good. I think he's a great transition two-way player. You know, the offense I think will come over time with the skill that he's got and the, and, and the skating that he has as well. Um, and if you're at 10th overall and you have a starting goaltender already locked up for the next eight seasons, then, and Askarov is available then maybe I slip on Askarov and say, okay, maybe we go with Amirov and that might be a guy in my top 10 that I think some people might, you know, my average ranking for him has him at 17. And I, I think he's a guy that, you know, at, at 10, maybe even nine might be a guy I look at. Um, but the guy that I've been the least cowardly about for sure uh, is, uh, is Marat for sure. Uh, that that's awesome. I, I love you, you discarding those, those biases and those, those group think, um, tropes that uh, I, I think sink into too many uh, public rankings. Um, mm -hmm. Will, you've been super generous with your time. Uh, I, we didn't get to half of the things that I want to mine you for. That, like, this was super <laughs> awesome. Um, I'm going to have to have you on again. Hopefully uh, you're willing to do so. But uh, before you jump out, do you have anything to plug? Uh, yeah, sure. So you can follow me on Twitter at Scouching, uh, YouTube as well, uh, Scouching. It's all there. Uh, I raise funds through Patreon, so you can subscribe for uh, early access to my videos. You get a bunch of data visualizations uh, that are that are you know include a lot more data on a lot more guys that I haven't gotten to a full data set on. Um, there's a Discord server and everything, so you can yell and scream about your favorite prospects and all that stuff. Um, so there's tons going on there. You can check that out at, at Patreon.com/scouching, um, and that that's really the gist of it. I'm on Instagram as well. It's Scouching underscore Will. And uh, yeah, you can, you can follow me and find me at any of those platforms. Right. And maybe coming in 2021, you'll do the prospect dance on TikTok. Uh, no, no, <laughs> no, you will not. You will not. You will not find me doing that. I am 
not the oldest man in the world, but I am too old for that. Okay, fair enough. I I, I tried. Let the let the record show. Uh, Will, yeah. uh, once again, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, man. Yeah, always a pleasure. All right, everyone. That's our show. Wasn't that a fantastic episode? Will Scouch, just a phenomenal resource for hockey and scouting information and looking at prospects for this year's draft whenever we happen to get that draft if you like what you listen to today please like subscribe and review wherever you get your podcasts i really appreciate it. it helps us out a lot that's it folks take care bye now